Listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make. There are things that go bump in the night, and we are the ones who bump back. Somewhere in the cosmos, perhaps, intelligent life may be watching these lights of ours, aware of what they mean. Or do our lights wander a lifeless cosmos? I couldn't help but one point in my discussions with General Secretary Gorbachev. I couldn't help but say to him, just think how easy his task and mine might be in these meetings that we held. If suddenly there was a threat to this world, from another planet outside in the universe. Well, I don't suppose we can wait for some alien race to come down and threaten us, but I think that between us we can bring about that realization. Hello and welcome, Crypt Keepers. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 2. My co-pilot and tail gunner, Ryan, is here to kick knowledge and knowledge is priceless. So go ahead and click that subscribe button so you don't get caught off guard. We're never caught slipping, right, Ryan? Never. (laughs) And the world population has been a major topic of discussion for the last couple of years. In my personal opinion, there's plenty of space, more than enough food, and the possibility of a utopia on this precious planet still exists before us. But what would happen if everybody's needs are fully met. Are our needs simply food, shelter, and health care? Or do we as humans have a need to work and be creative? The results of an experiment may shock and scare you. What are we talking about tonight, Ryan? We are talking about the Universe 25 Mouse Utopia experiment. That's correct. And obviously, we're dealing with lab mice it's not humans but we have kind of accepted as a society that we can test animals and kind of reproduce the results that i guess may or may not take place if that experiment or that situation is put upon humans and I mean, can we agree that we've accepted that lab mice and lab rats can be an indicator of or a predictor of what's to come with humans to a certain yeah. extent? Yeah, I think lab, what mice have 98% the same DNA as us, something like that. I'll take your word for it. And they're a decent predictor of at least how we're going to react medically to things. Absolutely. So... What we're talking about tonight, uh, we are just, so we're going to analyze an article written by James Felton that came out July 22nd, 2021. Over the last few hundred years, the human population of Earth has seen an increase, taking us from an estimated 1 billion in 1804 to 7 billion in 2017. And there is a lot out there about the powers that be saying that we have X amount of people on Earth. But 
it's kind of hard to do a census uh, of the Brazilian rainforest. And I know that's not going to add another 1 billion people to the total population, but I, I guess, can you agree that figuring out the world's um, population is a difficult task at least? Yeah, definitely. I think there are a lot of places that are, like you said, kind of hard to get to, even parts of the planet that are uncontacted. We've talked about that before. So, yeah, I, I can never be 100% accurate. So, throughout this time, concerns have been raised that our numbers may outgrow our ability to produce food, leading to widespread famine. Scary, right? Terrifying. <laughs> Some, the Malthusians, even took the view that as resources ran out, the population would control itself through mass deaths until a sustainable population was reached. As it happens, advances in farming, changes in farming practices, and new farming technology have given us enough food to feed 10 billion people, and it's how the food is distributed which has caused mass famines and starvation. Who controls the food supply? I don't know. What do you guys think? I mean, we've got just an unbelievable amount of farm and ranch land that's being used. And we've heard stories about our government basically forcing farmers to destroy their crops or they would lose their uh, subst subsidies. So mm -hmm. I don't know. Do you, do you have anything on that? Do you know anything about that? I know... Just from economics classes that I took in grad school that the reason for I don't I don't know that they destroy crops. I think what they do is they pay a subsidy to not grow certain crops because when it was a totally open free market mm -hmm. and you just sell as cheap as you can basically, mm -hmm. it drove prices too low. There was too much supply. <laughs> of course. The US is the US is too good at producing food. Right. Essentially, it was it was kind of one of these deals like what we see in the tech industry today when you have companies like Gateway and Compaq that go out of business because they're in this what they call a race to the bottom. You know, they're hmm. it they're, everything's just commoditized so it's just trying to get the cheapest possible price. And the idea behind the subsidies is you know, telling the farmers, hey, produce a little less so the price stays at a reasonable level, and then there's some kind of subsidy offered for that. It seems like it would be easy to ship that food to people that need it. I don't know. That's I I don't know. I honestly don't. I think there are logistical problems potentially. Mm -hmm. I, I know that like when there are disasters like natural disasters going on, hurricanes and things like that. Um they usually what I've heard is that it's best to donate money like uh -huh. it is. It usually costs a lot and is logistically difficult to transport food and blankets and clothes and things like that harder and more expensive than it would be to donate money and buy those things closer to where that tragedy took place. But when it comes to grains and things like that, you know, I don't know. That stuff seems to get shipped around the world anyway. Right. And it's always good to give money until you find out where that money goes. And we talked a little bit about it. If um, a guy 
gets paid $400,000 a year and gets you $8 million in donations, it's better than paying a guy $100,000 a year and getting $1 million in donations. Right. I just, I don't trust these charities that set up everywhere and, and then we don't know, you know, the details of how the money is spent. And it just, mm. it, it makes it rough. And, and I think a lot more people would donate if they knew it was going to the people that needed it. You know what I mean? I do. Yeah. And there's a lot out there that the whole thing in Haiti just lined the pockets of politicians. And, you know, they spent 10% of it on Haiti and then lined their pockets with the other 90%. But that's neither here nor there as, as far as this goes, I guess. Just a little side note for you guys to think about so all right while everyone was worried about the lack of resources one behavioral researcher in the 1970s sought to answer a different question what happens to society if all of our appetites are catered for and all of our needs are met the answer according to his study was an awful lot of cannibalism shortly followed by an apocalypse that's pretty dramatic yeah John B. Calhoun said about creating a series of experiments that would essentially cater to every need of rodents and then track the effect on the population over time. The most infamous of the experiments was named, quite dramatically, Universe 25. In this study, he took four breeding pairs of mice and placed them inside a utopia. The environment was designed to eliminate problems that would lead to mortality in the wild. The rodents had access to limitless food from 16 hoppers, which could be accessed via tunnels and would feed up to 25 mice at a time, as well as water bottles mounted just above. Nesting material was also provided. The weather was kept at 68 degrees Fahrenheit or 20 Celsius, which is just about perfect for mice. The mice were chosen for their health and obtained from the National Institutes of Health breeding colony. Extreme precautions were taken to stop any disease from entering the universe. As well as this, no predators were present in the utopia, of course. Wouldn't be a utopia if there were predators there. No. The experiment began, and as you'd expect, the mice used the time that would usually be wasted in foraging for food and shelter for having excessive amounts of sexual intercourse. Naughty mice. About every 55 days, the population doubled as the mice filled the most desirable space within the pen where access to the food tunnels was of ease. When the population hit 620, that slowed to doubling around every 145 days as the mouse society began to hit problems. The mice split off into groups, and those that could not find a role in these groups found themselves with nowhere to go. The outcasts. In the normal course of events in a natural ecological setting, somewhat more younger mice survive to maturity than are necessary to replace their dying and established associates, Calhoun wrote in 1972. The excess that find no social niches emigrate. So what does emigrate mean? I I mean, I'm curious what it means in this context. It's Mm -hmm. like it's it's basically just the act of leaving, right? Right. So they're saying that in nature you would probably just leave this colony or this like rat city under these circumstances. Yeah, I think that's what they're going for. 
So in this experiment, the quote unquote excess could not emigrate because there was no nowhere for them to go. I mean, essentially it was a a big cage. So they were all trapped there. The mice that found themselves with no social role to fill, there were only so many head mouse roles, became isolated. Males who failed withdrew physically and psychologically. They became very inactive and aggregated in large pools near the center of the floor of the universe. From this point on, they no longer initiated interaction with their established associates, nor did their behavior elicit attack by territorial males, read the paper. Even so, they became characterized by many wounds and much scar tissue as a result of attacks by other withdrawn males. What happened next? Find out after the break. Hey, what's up, Crypt Keepers? Are you enjoying the show? If you haven't already, I suggest taking my true crime podcast, Exploring Evil, for a test drive. Exploring Evil focuses on lesser-known serial killers, occult murders, and murders with a paranormal twist, so it should be right up your alley. The Magdalena Soli episode features a prostitute who convinced a Mexican village she was a goddess. She presented with psychosis, religious delusions, delusions of grandeur, sexual perversions, sadism, incest, fetishism, vampirism, and pedophilia. You don't want to miss that one. In the Indian Blood Farm, we cover a case where a man had an outbuilding he was keeping the downtrodden. He kept them weak by continuously draining blood to sell to the local hospitals who were running on short supply. But one man escaped and told the world what was really happening. How about the Body Snatchers episode where corpses had their body parts replaced with PVC pipes so they could be sold for a profit? In the Antron Singleton case, we cover a rapper who killed and ate pieces of a woman. There's always something new and interesting to listen to and a lot of twists and turns. So check out Exploring Evil everywhere you find Cryptique. Hey, my name is Ryan. And I'm pretty sure I'm Joe. And we are the hosts of Movie Hell, a podcast all about movies and pop culture. We're two buddies who talk about this stuff anyway and wanted to share our own madness with all of you. Yeah, we have these discussions anyway and rant and rave about movies, TV, and pop culture in general, so why not share it? The objective of Movie Hall is to bring you reviews and discussions of flops to avoid, new stuff to see, and hidden gems that might end up being your new favorite. Whether you're looking for that perfect movie for Friday night or wondering if anybody else found Mr. Nobody as unsettling as you did, I'm sure there's something for everyone to enjoy, and if not, let us know and we can always learn and improve. Ah, boy, do we have room to improve. You can listen to Movie Howl on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, and pretty much anywhere else fine podcasts are curated. The withdrawn males would not respond during attacks, lying there immobile. Later on, they would attack others in the same pattern. The female counterparts of these isolated males withdrew as well. Some mice spent their days preening themselves, shunning mating, and never engaging in fighting. Due to this, they had excellent fur coats and were dubbed, somewhat disconcertingly, the beautiful ones. 
the breakdown of usual mouse behavior wasn't just limited to the outsiders. Now, I think it's worth pointing out that from the research I did, the beautiful ones were kind of the last generation yeah. that came up during this experiment. It yeah. sounds like a lot of, you know, the, the society sort of went that the mice did normal mouse things, just mm-hmm. mousing around. And then <laughs> they started having kids and everything continued as, as normal until there were so many of them and so much social interaction that it started to kind of break down. And it seems like the parents became preoccupied and didn't care for the young as much. And then, yeah, more of this, you know, not, not properly socialized sort of behavior leading to a lot of fighting, attacking, you know, these scarred and wounded rats. And then towards the end, the beautiful ones emerged because they were all kind of a little bit more withdrawn from each other. Is that sort of the way it, it sounds like it happened with you? Yeah. I mean, ba- based on your research, not with you, that you were part of this. <laughs> you, you don't have a ratatouille rat under your hat. Okay, no, but that, that right. does sound right. The breakdown of usual mouse behavior wasn't just limited to the outsiders. The alpha male mice became extremely aggressive, attacking others with no motivation or gain for themselves, and regularly raped both males and females. Violent encounters sometimes ended in mouse-on-mouse cannibalism. Despite or perhaps because their every need was being catered for, mothers would abandon their young or merely just forget about them entirely, leaving them to fend for themselves. The mother mice also became aggressive towards trespassers to their nests, with males that would normally fill this role banished to other parts of the utopia. This aggression spilled over, and the mothers would regularly kill their young. Infant mortality in some territories of the utopia reached 90%. And I actually saw in one article that it might have been as high as 96 at one point during the experiment. It's hard to imagine a mother killing their child, although we do see it, you know, with Uh humans. It's a lot more regular than it should be. But it's hard to imagine a human in this situation saying, I'm just going to kill my kids. Mm -hmm. So this was all during the first phase of the downfall of the utopia. In this phase, Calhoun termed the second death. Whatever young mice survived the attacks from their mothers and others would grow up around these unusual mouse behaviors. We all know that, you know, dogs learn to be dogs from other dogs and people learn their behaviors from other people, positive or negative. And it would stand to reason that that would apply to the mice as well. So, yeah. As a result, they never learned usual mice behaviors, and many showed little or no interest in mating, preferring to eat and preen themselves alone. The population peaked at 2,200, short of the actual 3,000 mouse capacity of the universe, and from there came the decline. Many of the mice weren't interested in breeding and retired to the upper decks of the enclosure, while the others formed into violent gangs below, which would regularly attack and cannibalize other groups as well as their own. The low birth rate and high infant mortality combined with the violence, and soon the entire colony was extinct. During the mousepocalypse, food remained ample and their every need completely met. Calhoun termed what he saw as the cause of the collapse behavioral sink, 
And that's a quote, behavioral sync. For an animal so simple as a mouse, the most complex behaviors involve the interrelated set of courtship, maternal care, territorial defense, and hierarchical intragroup and intergroup social organization, he concluded in his study. When behaviors related to these functions fail to mature, there is no development of social organization and no reproduction. As in the case of his study reported above, all members of the population will age and eventually die, and the species will die out. So this experiment is showing that it's important, in my opinion, this um, experiment is showing that it's important for people to have roles. And, you know, every job is respectable. So I'm not, you know, trying to make one job less important than another but some people have to clean toilets and some people are attorneys it's roles that have to be filled if we didn't have someone to clean and fix toilets you know a la janitors and plumbers we wouldn't have any place to go to the bathroom and we would have sewage everywhere so Every role in society is extremely important, and I think that that's kind of the conclusion that he came to, or that this experiment came to, is that without roles, you kind of lose your humanity or rodentitry. I don't know what they call it for mice, but... um, (laughs) I like that, rodentitry. (laughs) That that could be a decent band name, too. (laughs) Not as good as War Booty. No, but what is? He believed that the mouse experiment may also apply to humans and warned of a day where, God forbid, all our needs are met. For an animal so complex as man, there is no logical reason why a comparable sequence of events should not also lead to species extinction. If opportunities for role fulfillment fall short of the demand by those capable of filling roles and having expectancies to do so, only violence and disruption of social organization can follow. And that's a that's a direct quote. Mm-hmm. At the time, the experiment and conclusion became quite popular, resonating with people's feelings about overcrowding in urban areas leading to moral decay. Let's talk about this for just a second. Okay. Now, keep in mind, this was in the 70s. And the spectrum of political correctness was much different back then. And I think it was common to think that inner cities were more violent and we don't know why. And mm-hmm. in reality, I think that it is a, I guess it's a problem more of being poor than it is a problem of living too close to people. Do, do you kind of go along with that or? I do. I think, <sighs> I think it's really easy to find statistics that support something you like and to say correlation does equal causation. There's a, there's a quote I was trying to find. It's by, um, there's a guy named Andrew Lang. who's apparently a poet, novelist, critic, and contributor to the field of anthropology. I had to look him up real quick because I've used this quote a hundred times and I didn't mm-hmm. know who to attribute it to. It's something that we, you know, when I was in school, I studied statistics really heavily. I even like, 
I was a, I was a grad assistant and I helped teach them. Mm-hmm. So there's always this thing, you know, this idea that you have to be very careful about saying that because two things are related that they are causing each other. Sure. Well, I think that the common feeling back then uh, incorrectly was that black people were inherently more violent because of the crime that took place in inner cities, which were mostly populated by black people. But you can go to any trailer park in America and get beat down and robbed and you can find meth and you can get killed just as easy as any inner city. So in my opinion, it's a problem of income and not really anything else because there are lots of wealthy people that live in cities and they are not selling drugs because they don't have to to put food on their table. Right, right, exactly. That's kind of where I was going to go with that is a lot of people and and, and news agencies – if you even want to call them that anymore, because a lot of them, I mean, you could look into the history of like tabloids mm-hmm. and how kind of regular newspapers have become tabloids mm-hmm. more than tabloids becoming <laughs> yes. newspapers. Yes. Like they, that's why tabloids are gone. It's mm-hmm. not just that people don't want to read about gossip in the grocery aisle line, like checkout line. It's that the regular news does that now. Right. They sensationalize everything. So they'll, they'll take a look at, a statistic that links poverty to crime or race to crime or whatever. Mm-hmm. They'll just say, well, this is the cause. But in reality, what I have seen from studies that I read years ago, it seems that people are much more similar along economic lines as opposed to racial lines. Mm-hmm. There's behavior that's more similar based on your wealth, your access to resources, things like that. So a wealthy white person and a wealthy black person are going to be potentially more similar than a poor white person and a wealthy white person. Yeah. Because they're in the same social structure and they've had the same opportunities. And I think opportunity is where you have the issue. Right. When you're in an area that's not wealthy, you you will inevitably see an increase in crime regardless of what kind of people are living there because like you said you got to put food on the table you got to feed your family you have to survive so there there is an increased chance of crime being the thing that fills the void in your income absolutely and that means businesses close down uh, some of the more predatory businesses might move in, which makes situations worse. Liquor stores and... Yeah, exactly. Like Tide Alone, stuff like that. Those move in and then you you just have so many fewer opportunities mm-hmm. to get out of that situation. And I mm-hmm. think that's what causes crime in those areas. I agree. That, that would be my assessment. And the reason I was even looking up that guy, Andrew Lang, uh, the quote that I was going to say is that you know, most people use, I think the quote is something like most people use statistics the way a drunk uses a light, a light post <laughs> for support rather than illumination. Yeah. They wanted to say, look at this, not let's see what this means. However, in recent times, people have questioned whether the experiment could really be applied so simply to humans and whether it really showed what we believed it did in the first place. In 2008, medical historian Edmund Ramsden said that the end of the mouse utopia might have arisen not from density, but from excessive social interaction. 
Facebook. Not all of Cal. Say again. Facebook. Mousebook. Facebook. Mousebook. Oh my god, <laughs> that's so good. Whiskerbook. <laughs> Not all of Calhoun's rats had gone berserk. Those who managed to control space led relatively normal lives. As well as this, the experiment design had been criticized for creating not an overpopulation problem, but rather a scenario where the more aggressive mice were able to control the territory and isolate everyone else. Much like with food production in the rest of the world, it's possible that the problem wasn't of adequate resources, but how those resources are controlled. Absolutely. Everybody wants more than they need. If you look at like the Maasai tribe or Maasai tribe in Africa, if there was no other humans living on earth, they could live that life that they have for eternity, assuming there's not a natural disaster or something. They replace every single thing that they take comes back. And that's all they need. That's what they take, and it will be there for their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. But for us who want more than we need, myself included, I'm not you know, above anything. Some people have to have a little less for other people to have a little bit more. And we see food sanctions all the time. There are infants dying in Yemen because we will not send food there. Infants dying, but nobody's talking about that. And it's always the little people that get hurt. You know what I mean? Like if, and I just using this as a broad example, let's just pretend there's a dictator in a country and his people are starving. And we say, no, we're not going to send food because we don't like this dictator. Dude, that dictator's still eating ribs and pizza and drinking, you know, Cavassier or whatever dictators drink. Mm -hmm. But it's the poor people that are dying from starvation. And that's just, I don't know, that's just an awful thing to me because nobody should suffer because of what people that control their environment, their country, their state, whatever. Nobody should starve because of their decisions. It's not, you know, the the tribesman that has two goats that he relies on, you know, to provide all of his food that's trying to build nuclear weapons. But right. they're the ones that are getting punished for it. And it's just sad. Yeah. And I think uh, in some of this and this is going back to the rap thing. Mm. I think from what I was able to tell from the original article and even some of the photos from the experiment, Mm -hmm. like there's a primary, you know, the figure one picture from the original article, uh, the guy standing, well, he said he's like kind of crouched in the middle of the experiment. They're supposed to pretty much leave them alone, but it seems like the humans do go into the enclosure from time to time. Mm -hmm. And he's kind of crouched in there to show like, this is big enough that a couple of people could be inside this thing. Mm -hmm. And you can see these feeders and where the water bottles are and all this stuff. And it looks like the mice are clustering around just a few of the feeders. And there are a couple others where they're just, uh, I mean, just sort of uh, like empty. You know, it's it. it, What it kind of reminds me of, and I did see things saying that you know the mice did that. You know, social interaction kind of took precedent over 
getting food. Mm-hmm. Like it became a very, very social thing. Mm-hmm. And it reminds me of seeing like restaurants. You know, one restaurant is jam-packed because it's the popular thing to do, popular place to go, whatever. Right. And then there are other spots that are just <clears throat> desolate. And yeah. it it's just very strange that even mice get into that. And it seems like it's the level of social interaction. I agree with that quote from earlier from that historian mm-hmm. that it seems like it's the social interaction that was the problem. It was that if you are rejected by this group, you have nowhere else to go. You have no alternative. You have no escape like mice burrow, mm-hmm. you know, humans migrate. Yeah. I think there are a lot of reasons why this would be really hard to replicate mm-hmm. in a human population Yeah, and why it's just why it had this like startling effect. Yeah. And there is a lot, a lot, a lot of criticism of this experiment that it's it's kind of incomplete. It's mm. a very highly controlled situation. If you gave, you know, four breeding pairs of mice a cornfield with a fence around it that they couldn't get out of, well, first off, you would probably have snakes, but it would allow them to go out and look for their food. Even though it's there, they still have to search out for it a little bit. It's not like, you know, to me, what this sounds like is you lay in your bed, people bring you food, you know, your your health care is, is fairly well taken care of, and it's just not, in my opinion, what animals of any sort or are built for. And do you think maybe it takes away the survival instinct that we all have? I don't know if it takes away the survival instinct or it introduces a new priority, which is socialization. Yeah. More powerful need. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting to try to compare this because I think you do see things like this in real life. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not going to see it necessarily quite this way in a city. I mean, there, there can be right. There are parallels. There are mothers who are too preoccupied with something else to raise and properly socialize their kids. Mm-hmm. A lot of the time though, I think that has to do with, you know, not just not having money. Mm-hmm. Having to be out to make money, you know, so I don't know that you can draw that same conclusion. I don't know that it would be like that if all your needs were met. Yeah. Well, mice don't have the ability to reason. Yeah, but Calhoun tries to relate this to overpopulation in cities. Yeah. And in a city, your needs aren't all met. You right. know, if you're ignoring your kids, it's because you have to work two or three jobs to keep them fed. Right. Like, you're still doing stuff for them. It's just something different, and maybe there's still some parallels that show up. The place where I think this could really be replicated and and where it was replicated in some of the studies would be in a prison. Mm -hmm. Because in a prison, there's nowhere to go. And some of the sort of supplemental studies that were taking place around the time this was published and, you know, trying to look into are there parallels with this in cities? You know, those didn't really find anything. In some cases, they found almost the opposite Mm -hmm. 
of this happening, like more like the structure, the traditional structure was more important. Mm-hmm. There was somewhat less aggression, but mostly inconclusive. But when they started studying things other than cities, like workplaces and whatever, it was it was prisons that they got to where it seemed similar. Mm-hmm. And from what I read, the breakdown in this structure and this overly aggressive behavior is likely caused to not overpopulation in terms of the number of people and the amount of space you have, Mm -hmm. but the number of interactions you have with people over the course of whatever period of time that you Mm -hmm. don't really have control over. Yeah. Like the fact that you can't get away and be on your own, that, that seems to be the thing that makes it most like the rat utopia. Well, and I think we need, the yin and yang of the universe we you know we crave to be around people but we also need solitude exactly i think it was carl jung that he said that his only retreat is solitude because 99% of what people say is complete nonsense and he can't stand to listen to them Uh, something along those lines. I'm not quoting, you know, word for word, but I think your comparison to a prison is way, way, way more relatable than the inner city. I mean, essentially they were in a prison. It's just, they didn't have specific cells they had to go to. Yeah. I mean that, that was another study, the, the prison thing. And I think that's right. I mean, it just sounds right. Mm -hmm. It makes sense. Logically, it follows. Personally, the place I think that is would be most comparable to this in terms of just general social behavior, not necessarily like reproduction, Mm -hmm. would be a school. Yeah. Like particularly like, you know, K through 12 kind Mm -hmm. of schools, because that is a situation where they're not there all the time, but they're trapped there eight hours a day, five Mm -hmm. days a week. All their needs are met. Mm-hmm. They're not exposed to anything harmful. There are no predators. They're, you know, they're fed. They're given. Although you know, they're fed water. Would tell us different. Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, you you can see. I was thinking of that as we were talking about this. I, I didn't think of it when I was doing research by myself. But I was thinking about the rats that are socially outcast and would normally just move on to another group. Mm-hmm. And it made me think of like just the groups that I knew of when I was in school. You know, there were there were kids who were part of the popular group and some of them were over aggressive. Mm -hmm. They were like trying to assert dominance over people. Yeah. And then there were kids who were kind of outcast and and most of them found some kind of group with each other. But Yeah. yeah, there were there were very obviously ones that didn't want to be there kids who wanted to get away and i think you have that aggressive behavior and an example of the aggressive behavior is when on one end of the spectrum when you see these videos online or tiktoks or whatever of like the quiet kid standing up for himself and making a good comeback or something like that to a bully Mm -hmm. all the way to like the kid who's been bullied who comes in and does something horrific that ends up on the news, you know? I think those are all... I mean, that lines up with outcasts who don't have a purpose and a clear group in a situation like that, you know, becoming 
just highly aggressive and, and dangerous. Well, and like you were saying, in prison, I mean, we have rapes, male-on-male rapes by men that do not consider themselves gay or bisexual. Mm. And they get their three hots and a cot. You know, it's not everything they want, but they have their meals and their place to sleep. And the violence is there for sure. Yeah. And yeah, they have they have no place else to go. But yeah, I can see the uh, prison and the and the school being good uh, comparisons to this. I don't know. I mean, I guess it's a social experiment, right? Or does it have to be a involve humans to be a social experiment? I don't know. I think it's usually a human thing, but I mean, that's clearly what he's doing here. Yeah. It's kind of he's trying to analogy. He's trying to. Yeah, find an analogy for crowded modern cities, and it's it's an imperfect one, mm-hmm. but it is interesting and kind of scary. It is, and I mean it. It's it's maybe not a mirror reflection of what happens in some places, but it's kind of a baseline. It's something to consider, and one of the things that I wondered is would this be different if mice mated for life? If they had a couple that stayed together, just, you know, from what I've seen watching nature films and and stuff like that, it seems like the parents seem to do a better job if it's both of them. Like we see penguins work together and sacrifice so much just to hatch one egg. And I just wonder, would there be a different outcome if mice were uh, lifelong mates? Because I I just, you know, you have two, and like I said, mice don't necessarily have the ability to reason as far as what we've been able to prove or disprove so far. But if having that other parent being like, hey, lady, there's mouse food over there. Don't eat your kid. What's wrong with you? You know, something along those lines. But Yeah. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about the the nature of the relationships that mice have maybe having an impact. Because what, what animals made for life? Like geese? I think geese do. Penguins do. Um Gosh, there's not a whole lot. A a lot of birds, it seems, you know, made for life. But Well, Calhoun studied birds when he was younger. He published, from what I saw, he published his first paper, I think, on birds when he was like 15. Yeah, I think you're right. I I do remember seeing that in a a video on YouTube. I don't know. Should we be worried? I, I don't foresee a situation where all our needs are met. (laughs) <laughs> well, I think you and I should. Oh, you know, that, that's that's absolutely true. I think you and I should uh, seek funding. Mm-hmm. We'll create a goosetopia, <laughs> and we'll see if geese who made for life run into the same issues. Yeah, but have geese to be a are mean as fuck, man. Geese will kill yeah. you. So, oh yeah. All right. Anything else you want to say about the universe twenty-five? No, I thought it was really interesting. I I don't. I don't know that it 
yeah, I don't know that it's useful to try to directly parallel that with human behavior. Um, but I do think it potentially highlights some issues with like the prison system. Yeah. With, uh, in the prison system, there's nowhere where you can be alone. There's no sort of retreat. Right. And if that's, it's one of these things where I've always kind of thought like, if that's what we as a, as a, as a society decide is the right punishment, like this is what you do, mm-hmm. then I guess it's whatever. But we talk about prison in terms of debt, Right. And when you come out, you've paid your debt to society. Sure. That's what it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. You paid your debt. You've done your time. Like you've, you've in theory earned some kind of redemption and also rehabilitation. Yeah. And we don't seem to have that anymore. I remember on Reddit a couple of years ago, seeing pictures of like what a Danish, I think it was Danish or like maybe Norwegian prison cell looked like. And it looks like a small dorm room. Mm-hmm. Like there's a, a desk, window, a cot, like it looks fairly nice, like it's drywalled. Mm-hmm. You're clearly on your own in there. And there were people saying like, oh, this is disgusting. Like, why would your prison be like this? Mm-hmm. And some of the people who are responding were like, well, we view prison as a place to rehabilitate and and learn. Mm-hmm. And then put people back into society. And, and they probably give them skills, like not just social skills, but work skills to go back out and become a productive member of society. Right, right. Where, yeah, where here the mindset is punishment. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I think that's a political thing. Mm-hmm. But it's something that we should be looking at. It's always popular to be harder on crime. Yeah. Even though that doesn't necessarily have a super high correlation with a reduction in crime. Yeah. Yeah, the the punishment of serving time is not enough to rehabilitate. It's just not. Well, yeah, it's it's not on its own. And then when you come out and your opportunities are taken away, Mm -hmm. the barrier to you committing your special crime again is much lower. Right. Like, what do do you have left to lose when you come out? Whereas if you could return to a normal life again, Mm -hmm. you know, it'd be like, well, I definitely am not going through that again. You might learn your lesson from it if you could sacrifice all of it again Mm -hmm. by committing another crime. But when you come out and you're like, well, I did work for Enron and I embezzled a bunch of money, but, you know, I went to jail and now that I'm back and I'm back in a highly successful financial role, I'm definitely going to be more careful about handling numbers in the future and not just blindly doing what my boss tells me. You know, you might kind of learn your lesson in that way. Yeah. But you might kind of use your financial knowledge for evil if you have no opportunities when you come out. Yeah. Like it applies to any kind of any kind of person who goes in. Like your your opportunities are so limited after you come out. And even if you're falsely convicted and falsely imprisoned, you still have the same prospects when you come out as somebody who was guilty of it. But Mm -hmm. one place that I think this experiment could have been a bigger benefit, and this is kind of in comparison to your uh, prison analogy, you take three or five or ten of each type of mouse. You take... 10 beautiful ones, you take 10 alpha males, you take 
10 that are, you know, the beta cucks of the society, place them in another environment and see if they're able to kind of acclimate socially or if they're, for lack of a better term, ruined for life. They, from what I saw, I don't remember if this was the original article. I have it up. I can't. He did a lot of experiments, but I did not read about one where he tried to integrate certain types of mice into another, you know, normal mouse colony. I did because the experiment wasn't totally over by the, like it was clear that the rat utopia was in decline Mm -hmm. at the time that he wrote the paper. Okay. But it wasn't like done. It was still, there were still rats alive. Yeah. What I, what I saw was that they did take like another four pairs out of that, like ones that were fit for breeding. Mm Mm-hmm. And tried it, like just tried to not exactly start it up again, but allowed them to breed to see what would happen. Mm -hmm. But all of their social skills and like the things that they should have learned Mm -hmm. were so impaired that they were not successful. And the the children that they had, the, you know, mouselets, what do you call a baby mouse? But the young did not survive. Okay. Is what I saw. They, They were kind of like... It was one of those things where they just didn't have the instinct. They said the mothers were able to nurse the babies, like basically to weaning, but you know, not able to care for them enough that they survived. Well, that kind of brings up nature versus nurture because in the Exploring Evil podcast, we talk a lot about like when I went into this, I was all nurture. Kids are not bad. It's their upbringing, their environment that, you know, through abuse, neglect, uh, you know, sexual assault, that's what breaks them. But I have found a lot of cases where people had a good upbringing and they were just awful, like talking about like murder and dismemberment and cannibalism and rape and stuff like that. So my meter has kind of switched a little bit and I think that, you know, the answer isn't nature versus nurture, but nature and nurture. It takes both to make a successful adult. And if you have a good kid, they can be broken through nurture. And if you have a bad kid, maybe they can be quote unquote fixed through nurture. And I I think that instead of seeing nature versus nurture, we need to see that it's everything together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I think that's true. I've always kind of had a problem with uh, the idea. What's it? I think it's called tabula rasa, which is Latin for blank slate. I believe it's this psychological idea that we're all basically born without any built in sort of programming Mm -hmm. that we're all just, we are all purely a product of our upbringing. Mm-hmm. And, and like you're saying, I don't think that's totally the case. I think sometimes there's some other influence or just some way that you are. And I don't know if that comes from a parent or from an environment. And it's not something that we're able to recognize very easily. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that people have impairments that we haven't figured out how to medicate, fix, etc., I don't know. I mean, I think it's both. 
personally, and this experiment doesn't really scare me or upset me because in the end, it's mice. You can only glean so much knowledge from such a low-end animal as far as its uh, mental abilities or the complexity of its social structures and interactions. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's kind of taking from the article itself sure. that, that that's what they're looking at. There's a Calhoun and the way he writes his article. I, I had professors, you were saying before we, before we really were doing the podcast that some people like to throw out these huge words. Uh-huh. And I was just watching a debate on YouTube a couple days ago where it was like that. It was there was a guy who could explain things very simply, and then the opponent who just used all this really flowery language that was hard to follow. Uh-huh. And I had a professor one time who said, like, you know, you there's a certain kind of person who does that. Yeah. And they were saying the point is that they know that you know that they know big words. Right. <laughs> And Calhoun kind of seems like one of those people. But sometimes the phrases are actually uh, kind of meaningful. Do you think that this could be a reflection of something that could happen in the future with smart cities and all that? <clears throat> I mean, what we're talking about at that point is basically Star Trek, uh-huh. right? Where where it's a, it, it's a post-scarcity society mm-hmm. where all resources are abundant the difference is with people i think the the sort of star trek utopia is more likely i i don't know i mean i think we're gonna have more insights into it after the dust from the pandemic has settled mm-hmm. like we're finding that you know like you were saying that the the importance of some of these what you would normally consider lower end jobs mm-hmm. has been greatly underestimated for mm-hmm. a long time. You know, there are a lot of businesses that have shut down because they can't get workers who are normally minimum wage or something like that. Yeah. Because, you know, people are realizing that they can do something else or that they can just do nothing. And, you know, they have some kind of bargaining leverage that way. But I think the difference is. And I I do wonder if we'll see this coming out of the pandemic, that when people don't have a purpose and an immediate need for resources, that they will pursue creative endeavors or things that are fulfilling, Mm -hmm. like Star Trek. You know, Star Trek was this thing where it's post-scarcity. There's no, they're not getting paid to do this stuff. Right. They're in this structure, you know, this this military-like structure but they're exploring and doing these things because they want to do them. You know, they don't have to pay for anything. Like they can get all their food from the replicator, any items they want. They can have an, almost any experience they want in the holodeck, mm-hmm. but they still choose to pursue these things that they're interested in. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if, if we'll see that because it seems like a lot of people did something like that during the pandemic. Yeah. You know, if they had time, more time to themselves than normal rather than devolving into anarchy. They, you know, I know somebody who started making candles. Uh They started like an online candle business, 
You know, I know people who studied for a real estate license and, mm. you know, things like that. Oh, that's a, that's a tough sell. Wow. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I think, I think the difference is, you know, people will come up with something to do. Mm-hmm. If they have nothing else to do, they'll come up with something. Whereas in the rat utopia, their, their social structure is so simple. It doesn't really allow for that. And they have no need to really, at least as far as we know, express themselves artistically, which humans do. So, uh-huh. Uh-huh. But at the same time, I can also see violence becoming a thing. I don't know that we'll ever get to a place where we don't have it. I think mm-hmm. it's so built into us. And e- even for me, there are times where it's like, yeah, it might be kind of fun to get into a fight. I haven't been in a fight in years. Yeah. Like it's it's just one of those things. Like I had friends growing up where we would just like fight and wrestle for fun. Yeah. Like we're all hanging around and somebody takes a swing at somebody else, or you just like tackle somebody, and it's. I mean, you're not. But I guess the difference is you're not really trying to hurt them. Yeah. You're not going to eat their still, children. Yeah, it's still a form of play. Mm-hmm. It's not like I'm coming up with like knuckle dusters on (laughs) let us know what you think at cryptiquepodcast at gmail.com don't forget to subscribe follow etc remember the knowledge is free all we ask is that you tell a friend we're in this together we've got lots in store for the rest of season two including a couple of well-documented alien encounters vampire mysteries and what the hell is a dark impact Email us if you'd like us to cover the Dietlov Pass incident as well. There's new evidence out there. So let's explore the world together, only on Cryptique. Good evening, Crypt Keepers. Nothing with any certainty, but the sight of the stars makes me dream. You